Welcome, welcome, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the 13th edition. Lucky number 13, Billy Guerin, for all you Pittsburgh Penguin fans out there. The 13th edition of the Rambling Brews podcast, hosted by yours truly. The name is Tim, and I've been absolutely chomping at the bit over the last couple days to get to this episode, because honestly, it's been a hell of a week in the world of sports. We had a huge controversy in the National Hockey League regarding officiating, where the NHL was actually forced to shit-can a respected official just weeks prior to his retirement. We'll dive deep into that. I cannot wait for that conversation. And also some teams I've been critical of over the past few episodes and over the course of the season, mainly like the Nashville Predators. I've said that they've been underachieving. Their roster shows that they should be a much better team than they are, and their coach should be on the hot seat. But they've absolutely been on a heater over the last week, winning five straight. So we're going to take a look at their playoff positioning and and take a look at the uh, up-to-date standings across the league. Also, the Philadelphia Flyers, you just got to love this. They seem hell-bent on destroying their own phenom goaltender, Carter Hart, which to me you just got to laugh at. Just incredible what a gong show that organization is over there in the city of brotherly love. So we'll take a look at that whole situation. But first, this week, I know I mentioned that uh, on previous episodes that I was only going to do these beer tastings when I have a guest on. I've had feedback, and personally, I think it's more entertaining uh, whenever a a guest and I both review a beer. And last week with Ray was the first beer, uh, or first review where we both had the same beer. Now, we did have different alcohol uh, content percentages, but I found out from a loyal listener and my neighbor, Jordan, a good buddy of mine, mentioned that it's based on the volume, just as Ray mentioned in the last episode. That's what we kind of thought. So that's the reason why. So we did have the same beer, but I wanted to bring it back this week because I've got a very special beer to try, courtesy of my brother, uh, Sammy Ack. And this is a Springhouse Brewing Company Cherry Hazy India Pale Ale. Now, typically I wouldn't really like something that has like a cherry flavor as far as beer goes. I mean, for candy, ice cream, those kinds of things, drinks, cherry's the way to go. But I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not usually one uh, to judge a book by its cover, some might say. <laughs> um, but I, I, it's just not really my cup of tea. But he mentioned, you know, hey, this is one of the best IPAs I ever had. And him and I have very similar beer tastes. Um, Coors like guys through and through. So I trust his opinion. So I said, all right, I'll give it a try. This one's 6.6% alcohol. Um, and for some reason they've got like the word tentacles written all over it. I'm not sure what the significance is there. Um, almost looks like an Illuminati symbol on the front of it. I'm sure that's not it, but it's pretty cool. Nice, cool design there. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and crack this beer, but first before I mention, or before I do that, Sam did mention that for this beer to taste as good as it can be. And I think this is actually a general rule for all beer drinking and any, um, sophisticated beer drinkers out there that you got to drink it in a glass. So I'm going to crack this beer, and I'm going to pour it in a glass. And we're going to give it a shot here. Oh, wow. That's really damn good. You can taste the The cherry tastes great. Let me get another sip of that. I'll have to have uh, some listeners go back and see what my ratings were for all the beers that I've tried so far. But this is by far the best IPA I've ever had, either whether I scored it on this show or I've just had it and, you know, outside of the podcast. This is, and remember, it's out of five stars, the Morel meter. I'm going 4.3. 4.3 rating. 
I would recommend this to anybody, whether you're an IPA drinker or not. This is absolutely incredible. It says it's, um, I'm not sure what Isaac's award is, but they're Isaac's award-winning hand-picked cherries. It's brewed out of Lancaster, PA. Um, unbelievable, man. I, I wonder, I, I would definitely, I think I would put this in the rotation. And I had a buddy, uh, my, my good buddy Dustin reached out to me saying he, last week he never thought I would say something nice about an IPA, and that's two weeks in a row now. So I don't know what's happening. I'm still Coors Light guy through and through, and I always will be. But, man, this is a goddamn good beer. I'm going to take one more sip before we get moving. And like I said, I would highly recommend this beer to anybody. But you know what I wouldn't highly recommend to anybody? is being a National Hockey League official and saying into a hot mic that can be heard over the television broadcast that you didn't see much but you wanted to give a penalty to Nashville. Because <laughs> that's exactly what veteran official Tim Peel did. So if you didn't see it, the other night Nashville was playing against, I believe, Detroit. And there was a penalty that was called just before a commercial break. So Fox Sports is going to their replay, as a lot of um, networks do. They show a replay of a, you know, a big play that just recently happened in the game or a controversial call as they kind of lead into commercial. And you got the Fox Sports... Uh, music on dun, 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 dun. like that awesome music that the Penguins need to bring back and they got to get rid of AT&T Sportsnet but that's a completely different situation and a different discussion for a different day but basically what they're doing is they're showing that replay as I just mentioned so on top of that replay you can hear the officials hot mic so I don't know if the official had their mic on or if it was a mic in the arena that caught it or a TV mic whatever it was but basically you hear the other official I don't know if it was Kelly Sutherland um or whatever official it was, but basically you hear the other official, not Tim Peel, but the other one calling the game, um, say, hey, I didn't see what you saw. Like, what were you looking at there? I didn't see the penalty. And then you hear Tim Peel say, eh, I didn't see much, but I wanted to get a penalty against Nashville early, and then it cuts off. <laughs> so obviously, social media just takes this and runs with it. It's a wildfire all over Twitter. Everybody's losing their mind. People are saying, this is a joke. What a jabroni league. What a terrible look for the NHL. This is match fixing. All this bullshit. I had buddies of mine in group chats saying the NHL, this this looks like the NHL is fixing games. How do you know he's not Tim Donaghy, the NBA referee that was um, convicted of doing uh, fixing games for gambling and stuff like that and working with a mob, I think, something along those lines. But an incredible story on Tim Donaghy. But my buddies were saying that. I saw people on Twitter saying the same things. And it was just crazy. So... Obviously, Tim Peel got word of this, and he, he felt awful after the game. Um, he mentioned that he saw the replay and saw the, the call, and he was very disappointed in, in himself. Um, he went up to the Nashville Predators after the game and actually apologized for it. Um, so first, I wanted to discuss the optics and why the NHL had basically had no choice but to fire Tim Peel. So obviously, it looks horrible. No matter how you shake it, this could be twisted into a gambling story, as I just mentioned some of my buddies did. Um, and as the NHL, they're trying to get more involved with sports books and MGM grand and all that stuff. And you really have to preserve the integrity of the game. So the NHL, like I said in the intro, they had to shit can this guy. They fired him, but they had no choice because they have to preserve the integrity of the game. But do I think that Tim Peel, an official that's been in the league for, you know, I think 20, 30 years, like I said, he was getting ready to retire. He's one of the most respected officials in the NHL um, as far as players go. And you've seen players come out and defend him um, and say, you know, they, they just think it was an unfortunate mistake. Um, even the NHL officials have said the same thing. The NHL has said the same thing, but he really left the NHL no choice. So um, 
you know, you kind of feel bad for that. But honestly, what the problem is, is this is basically just a makeup call. That's all it is. In my opinion, this happens in every sport, basketball, baseball, doesn't matter. There's no profession in the world that's more emotional than an umpire or an official in any sport, but mainly like the NHL. I mean, these guys, like, they hold a grudge, and they do not like to be shown up by a player. If they make a bad call, if they're out of position, whatever the case is, and the player gets in their face. And I think, honestly, in the NHL, nobody screams at the refs more than the NHL. You could probably say the NFL, but that's usually like coaches or like college basketball, pro basketball. It's usually coaches. In terms of players screaming at officials and not getting teed up for it, the NHL is known for that. But but the the officials, they hold a grudge. So I'm not sure exactly what happened in this situation. I wasn't watching, you know, the Nashville Detroit game because I just have better things to do. I don't want to watch those two teams play right now. But you never know what could happen prior in the game. Maybe there was a call and Tim Peel felt he was angry, he got shown up or whatever, and that's it's a, there's a human element to the game. That's always been something that's been uh, plaguing the NHL is the makeup call. It's almost been condoned by the league. The league prefers that because I've actually seen interviews, and I think it was Kevin Bieksa, who's a, a, an outstanding uh, defenseman back in the day, but now he's a, a media superstar up in Canada on Sportsnet. He mentioned, hey, a couple of years back, I went to, um, like a, I guess, a seminar with other NHL players, um, with officials, with league executives. All, all aspects of the league were represented. You had the NHL Players Association, you had the referees uh, union, and you had the league itself. And basically what the what was said was the NHL does not want their referees to be robots. So you hear that all the time. People say, I want, uh, you, why don't they just call the rule book the way it's designed? We'll have more power plays, blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's fine. But if you, let me turn it to football for a second. In football, you could call a holding penalty on every single fucking play. Okay. Now, how exciting would that be to watch? Now, you watch a game now, there might be 10 to 12 penalties on each team, and all you see online and all you hear in the media and all you hear is people that are watching the games, they say, Jesus Christ, just let the guys play. There's so many fucking penalties. This is brutal. This game's taking forever. So what side do you want? I agree with the NHL where I think that they should let the referees kind of kind of gauge the pulse of the game. If it's a physical game, if it's a playoff game, if it's a heated rivalry, they tend to let things go a little bit. They're not going to call every ticky-tack thing. But on the other hand, the way the makeup calls work is if like you have four straight power plays against the team. It could be 2-2, you could be up 4-0, doesn't matter. You could be down 4-0. You have four straight power plays. Everybody that's ever played hockey or ever watched hockey or knows anything about hockey, or really any sport, but hockey in this sense, knows that you better not give the official anything in terms of what they can call for a penalty if you're the team that just had four power plays you get a stick up near the hands you use a free hand something like that a little minor interference you're getting teed up you're getting called guaranteed same thing goes for a team that's like up five nothing if you're up five nothing on a team and you get hacked you get slashed you get interference slew foot whatever the hell it is doesn't matter you're not getting the call that's just the way it goes that's the way it's always been in the nhl and nobody seems to have a problem with it like a real problem with it, everybody kind of just understands it until it's said out loud. So I wouldn't advise saying it out loud like Tim Peel did because he left the NHL no choice. Now they have to come out in the open and say, fuck, this guy. I mean, he came out basically and said, hey, I want to get a penalty on this team. I mean, the optics are horrible. 
Um, I should note that in the CBA between the NHL and its officials, it does contain specific code of conduct references that, quote, each official agrees to abstain from habits of intemperance, gambling, immorality, or other conduct likely to bring himself and or the NHL and or the game of hockey into disrepute or which results in the impairment of public confidence in the honest and orderly conduct of NHL games or the integrity and good character of its officials. Close quote. So basically what it's saying is like the collective bargaining agreement says you can't do this. You can't, you can't bring bad PR. You can't have anything where somebody could use that against the integrity of the game and somebody could think that the game is not like legit. So obviously under those circumstances, Tim Peel has to be canned. Um, there's just, there's just no way. I mean, there's, there's no way to defend it um, for what he said, but every referee and every fan and every executive and every player, they all know that. Um, in 2005, 2006, like I was saying before with them calling every penalty by the rules, they did that. They basically called every penalty and each team had 5.85 power plays per game. And there was players all around the league saying that's a joke. I mean, listen, like watch a hockey game. And if you want to watch 11 power plays, 12 power plays, I mean, come on, like it's going to completely, it, it completely chops up the game. It basically makes it so there's no rhythm to the game. Nobody can get in any, any like kind of, in any sink, any chemistry, anything going. There's, there's top players um, that are, you know, not getting ice time because of it, because their team's constantly on the penalty kill or whatever the case is. Um, it's just a, it's a bad look for the NHL. They did what they had to do. Uh, they fired Tim Peel. Like I said in the intro, he was set to retire on April 24th. That's unfortunate for him. He would have likely gotten a nice send-off ceremony from the league and teams that were playing in his final game. And all that's gone now. And his legacy is forever tarnished. Um, I don't know if, if he'll ever uh, have a chance to potentially be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. I would imagine time heals all wounds. It could happen. Um, but I wonder what like the what the snowball effect of this is going to be. And we saw it the other night uh, with Wayne Simmons, the forward for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's talking to the official, um, Eric Furlat, another respected official. And what's he do while he's talking to <laughs> Simmons? He puts his hand on his chest and covers up his microphone so you can't hear everything he's saying. So I wonder, like, will the referees not want to wear mics now? We'll see how it plays out. Everything I've seen, the, the referees basically said, hey, this is a one-off incident, uh, one-off incident, and I don't think this is a big deal. Like, you know, we'll work to be better. We'll work to, you know, call the games more strictly to the rules and the integrity of the game and all that. That's all we do. But I, it'll just be interesting to see kind of how it plays out and, and what the ramifications are of this. But, again, there's nothing the NHL could could have done. Um, they had to do what they did, and I commend them for doing so. They had to protect the integrity of the game. That's the most important thing. But you just feel a little bit for for Tim Peel that uh, you know something that's really known around the league and that happens and is condoned and accepted by all parties kind of got him shit canned. So um, you feel bad for that, and it really got me thinking. And my brother-in-law brought this up to me. I wanted to dig into this a little bit because I found it interesting. Has anybody ever wondered where like NHL officials and linesmen? came from like did they play in college did they play minor hockey did they play juniors did they play pro were they drafted things like that because i've never really um kind of dug into that and i've never really thought about that i've had buddies of mine you know constantly over the years because i've always been very critical of officials like i said i've been watching the penguins since i was like five so 
I always felt there were certain officials that were harder on the Penguins that I didn't like. So we'd be like watching games back in college and my buddies would be like, hey, Tim, who's officiating tonight? And I'd be like, oh, it's fucking Kerry Frazier. He hates the Penguins or, oh, it's, you know, Wes McCauley. He seems to always hate the Penguins or whatever the case is. So, <laughs> But I never really dug deep into their background. So I, I felt it was an interesting question and I wanted to bring it up here on the podcast. Um, there's a handful of former NHL players that have actually gone on to have careers as NHL officials, and eight of the league's current officials were selected in the NHL draft, though only one of them actually made it to the NHL as a player and an official, so that's pretty cool, and that was Dean Morton. Uh, Dean Morton was drafted in 1986 in the 8th round, 148th overall by the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, he's currently the only official to have played in an NHL game. He actually scored a goal. And a pretty crazy um, cool thing for him is the goal that he scored was assisted by Steve Eiserman, the Hall of Famer, one of the best players of all time. Um, so that's pretty awesome. He also played in the AHL, which is the American Hockey League, one step below the NHL. He played in the IHL, the ECHL, and a couple other um, minor leagues and junior leagues. Um, so pretty awesome that uh, Dean Morton was a guy that was able to make it as an official Um and it was drafted into the NHL and actually played an NHL game. So that's pretty incredible. The only current official to have done that. So that's pretty awesome. Um, Wes McCauley, I just mentioned, he was drafted in 1990 in the eighth round, 150th overall by, again, the, the Detroit Red Wings. <laughs> they must have a thing for turning guys into uh, officials. But he played at Michigan State. Um, he was teammates with guys like Anson Carter. Um, he went on to play in the East Coast Hockey League. Uh, the IHL, the Continental Hockey League, some some minor leagues, but still, you know, pretty solid player. He was actually drafted, which is crazy, ahead of Peter Bondra, the great Washington Capitol from the uh, 80s and 90s. Unbelievable that he was selected ahead of uh, Peter Bondra, six selections ahead of him. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, Scott Cherry, he was drafted in 1994, second over, or sorry, second round, 41st overall by the Washington Capitals. Uh, he played in Sault Ste. Marie in the OHL up in uh, Canada, and he actually played alongside in Sault Ste. Marie, Joe Thornton. So pretty cool. Joe Thornton's still playing in the NHL. He's one of the legends of the league. Um, this guy, which is crazy, he was drafted ahead of Jose Theodore, Patrick Elias, Sheldon Surrey, Chris Drury, Milan Hayduk, Daniel Alfredson, Evgeny Nabokov, Steve Sullivan, and Tomas Holmstrom. All of those guys went on to have pretty solid NHL careers. And it's crazy that Scott Cherry was drafted ahead of them. But it's just it just goes to show you what the NHL draft is. You never really know what you're getting. But again, more power to him. He was drafted very high, 41st overall, as I mentioned. He went on to, to officiate, and he's still a current official in the NHL. So pretty awesome. Um, Jake Brink, he was drafted in 2001 in the fifth round, 154th overall by the Edmonton Oilers. He played at uh, MSU Mankato with uh, David Backus and Travis Morin. Um, so pretty cool there. And he was drafted ahead of guys like Ryan Klo, Merrick Zidlicki, Brooks Like, Johnny Oduya, uh, Pierre Alexander, or P.A. Parento, and UC Okunin. Uh So pretty awesome. that Some of these officials, like, I was thinking that, like, whenever I started talking about it with my brother-in-law um, over the weekend here, like, you know, I didn't know any of this. And these guys le were legit players. And now some of them didn't pan out, like as we've talked about. They haven't made the NHL, but they did play in, in some pretty solid uh, junior leagues or solid minor leagues, and they were drafted ahead of some damn good NHL players. So I just thought that was really awesome. Um, and there's a couple other ones. I don't want to go through everybody, but it's pretty cool. Like, 
you know, how these officials, I mean, that's got to be one of the hardest sports in the world to officiate. You've got to be an exceptional skater. Um, you've got to know the rules, obviously, like every sport. But, you know, in football and baseball and basketball, you just know how to know how to run. Everybody knows how to run. But in hockey, you got to be an exceptional skater. you got to stay out of the play. There's no out of bounds. You can't just move outside the lines when you want to get out of the way. you got to be athletic. Um, just incredible. So you got to give credit to these officials. So swig a beer for the officials in the NHL. It's the toughest officiating job in all of sports, and it ain't close. And you know what else isn't close? <laughs> Is the Flyers to having some stability in the goal crease because Carter Hart has been horrible. Now, he's a top prospect, but by God, he has been brutal this year. He's got 20 starts, 8 wins, 9 losses, 3 overtime um, losses. He's got an 869 save percentage, so he's only saving 86.9% of the shots he faces. He's got a goals against average of 4.04. Folks, those are brutal numbers. That's exactly why Ron Hextall, the current general manager of the Penguins, when he was in Philadelphia, he didn't want to rush Hart. Um, He did not want to rush their prospects especially goaltending. There's no position in hockey that needs more like experience and confidence. And, you know, you can't just come in as a top prospect and it's very rare that you come in and you just light it up right away or you're not even light it up right away, but you're ready for the spotlight. You're ready for that number one role. I mean, there's guys like, you know, for the Penguins, fortunately, Marc-Andre Fleury was a first overall draft pick in 2003 and he lived up to the hype. He came right in, uh, played a few games in the minors, but came right in and really was ready for that role. Not every goalie is that way. It's no knock on Carter Hart, but they're really, really uh, hurting this kid, in my opinion. And, and their coach, Elaine Vigneault, he basically said um, the next two games. Now, the second game that I just mentioned of those next two games will have been played the day before this podcast comes out, as I'm recording this on Tuesday night. But he basically said, hey, Carter Hart's got to work more in practice. He's not playing the next two games. He might not play for a couple more games after that. We don't really know. Um he needs to work harder in practice. And honestly, like I said, I think they're killing this kid's confidence. Their defense is just not good enough. And I know um, Tuesday they put Shane Gostisbehere, one of their better defensemen, or at least uh, on paper better defensemen. He's been pretty brutal since his rookie year. Um, they put him on waivers, and it looks like the they're kind of positioning themselves for a big trade. Like I mentioned last week, it might involve uh, Matthias Ekholm. That's the rumor from Nashville potentially going to Philadelphia to try to bolster that defense. But honestly, I don't think their defense is good enough. And with Hart's confidence in the shitter, I'm not sure what's going to happen. But I don't know if putting him in the press box is really going to do him any good. I think he's got to kind of battle through this. I mean, you've already played your cards. You put him in too early. He had a good start to his career last year, but I didn't think he was going to sustain that. But I didn't think he was going to be this bad. I mean, I thought the Flyers would win the division but they're in a real battle for a postseason berth at this point. Um, we'll take a look at the standings here in a minute, but what the hell are the Flyers going to do with their young phenom goaltender? Confidence, like I said, is everything to a goaltender. You know, you can you can tell when a goaltender's playing confident. They're at the top of their crease. They're taking away angles. They're playing well. They're in good position. They're playing the puck comfortably. They just look confident. You can just tell by body language. Hart looks like he's playing with fear to me in every shot he thinks is going in. And right now that fear is reality because honestly, every shot's going in. I mean, like I said, he's got an 86.9% safe percentage. That is a joke for a National Hockey League goaltender, let alone a guy that's 
you know, allegedly a top prospect and could be the goaltender for many years to come in Philadelphia. I mean, he is playing horribly. And Philadelphia, they're an absolute goaltender graveyard. And they have been for a long time. They really haven't had a top tier, you know, number one franchise goalie since Ron Hextall. I mean, they've had guys like Michael Layton. They've had guys like Marty Biron, Sergei Bobrovsky, who they traded, who's now a stud in Florida. Um, they had Ray Emery. Rest in peace to Ray Emery. They've had Brian Elliott. He's still on the team, but he's a backup. They've had a couple other guys. They really can just never find that. They can never solidify that goaltending position. They've had some good teams, but they just have always had bad goaltending. I mean, they had Ilya Brzgalov on a huge contract for fuck's sakes. I mean, but now they finally get a guy, a top prospect, Carter Hart, one of the best young goaltenders in the league, best young prospects to, to come in the last 10, 12 years as far as goaltending goes. And I'm not sure where it goes from here. They're a good team. They've got high expectations, and he's got to turn it around quick because that team's getting older. They've got good pieces, like I said, but he's got to get it together. So I don't know what's going to happen because right now they're on the outside you know, looking in as far as the standings go. And with that, I did want to pivot over a little bit to the uh, NHL standings. Now, I did want to mention it was brought to my attention um, by my wife, actually, that I should mention that I record these podcasts on Tuesday nights. So as of Tuesday night, These are the standings right now. So in the East Division, we've got the Washington Capitals with 50 points. They've got 23 wins, 8 losses, and 4 overtime losses. Just playing really well. Um, Very consistent. Getting good goaltending. Ovechkin's got 10 goals in his last 10 games. Really firing up. I think he's only 5 goals back of Austin Matthews now for the Rocket Richard. So just when you thought he was going to be out this year, maybe you know, kind of lying in the weeds a little bit with his stats, He's buzzing again, and the Capitals are buzzing. They're, they're going just right along with him. Um, so they're tops of the division right now. The New York Islanders, uh, they're in second place right now. They've got 22 wins, 10 losses, and four overtime losses for 48 points through 36 games. They're actually tied with the Pittsburgh Penguins, who are at 23 wins, 11 losses, and two overtime losses for 48 points through 36 games. But I believe the Islanders are in second place because of the uh, regulation and overtime wins. Um, category. They have more regulation and overtime wins than the Penguins, but the Penguins did just beat the Islanders twice in a row this past week in regulation. So there's a huge two points um, for the Penguins and they're buzzing. And we're going to dive into them here in a little bit, but they're 12, three and one in their last 16 games. That's tied with the Colorado Avalanche for the most points in the NHL over that span with 25. So they're really playing well and they sit in third place right now, um, but only two points back of the Washington Capitals. So it's a tight race for that division lead in the East. Um, in Boston, they sit in the fourth spot right now. They're at 18 wins, nine losses, five overtime losses with 41 points through 32 games. So they've got a couple games in hand, um, four on the Penguins and Islanders and three on the Capitals. Um, but they're seven points back of, of second and third there in the division for the last playoff spot in the East. And like I said, Philadelphia, I mean, they started off hot. They were tops of the division looking like they were going to run away with it. And now they're 17 wins, um, 13 losses and four overtime losses. For 38 points in 34 games. And I mentioned their poor goaltending. As a team, they're a dash 17 in goal differential. They've given up 17 more goals than they've scored as a team. So that's not a recipe for success. You rarely see teams that make the playoffs with a negative goal differential. So a lot of work to do for the Philadelphia Flyers. And the New York Rangers are right behind them um, with 36 points through 35 games. So two points behind the Philadelphia Flyers. And then you've got the Devils and the Buffalo Sabres uh, puttering down the bottom of the standings. And Buffalo, I mean, 
They've matched the NHL's longest winless streak in the 21st century at 18 games. And for their 18th straight winless game, they were up 3-0 against the Philadelphia Flyers the other night and lost the game 4-3 in overtime. Um, Just to point out some of the worst teams in the 21st century, you've got the Buffalo Sabres currently, as I mentioned, for 2020 and 2021 season, they've lost or they've winless in 18 straight games, I should say. They've tied the Pittsburgh Penguins in 2003-2004, one of those horrible Penguin teams in the early part of the millennium. They also had 18 straight winless games. In 2002-2003, so the year prior to that, the Penguins had 16 games in a row where they were winless. And then you've got the uh, Phoenix, who are now the Arizona Coyotes, but were the Phoenix Coyotes at the time in 2003-2004 with 15 straight uh, winless games. And then the 0203 Nashville Predators also with 15 straight winless games. So rarefied air in a horrible way for the Buffalo Sabres, and there's no end in sight with that team. I mean, it's a fire sale up there. They're trying to get rid of everybody they can, but they're just finding new and improved ways to lose games. And that's the East Division. It's really looking like it's a six-team race. Um, If you count the Rangers in there, they're only two points behind uh, the Flyers, as I mentioned. So it's going to be tight, but the top three teams there, they've got a comfortable lead um, on the rest of the division, and hopefully they can all hold on here. Um, in the North Division, man, is it tight up top. You've got the Toronto Maple Leafs still. They've been basically um, you know, coast to coast. They've been leading the division up there. They've got 22 wins, 10 losses, 3 overtime losses for 47 points through 35 games. You've got the Winnipeg Jets right on their heels with 22 wins, 12 losses, and 2 overtime losses for 46 points through 36 games. So they're one point behind the Leafs, but they played one more game. And you've got the Oilers there with uh, 22 wins, 14 losses, and one overtime loss through 37 games. That's 45 points. So one point back of the Jets, two back of the Leafs. Um, They played a couple more games in those teams. And then really, I mean, you've got a nice uh, three-team race for the four seed here with Montreal, Calgary, and Vancouver. So those teams are separated um, with Montreal in the four spot right now in the playoffs with 39 points. And you've got Calgary. And Vancouver sitting at 35. And Ottawa, they're honestly not too far behind. I mean, they're 28 points right now, 11 points back in Montreal. That's a huge hurdle uh, to overcome. But, you know, crazier things can happen. So we'll see what happens there. But that's a tight division. It's really a six-team race there as well. So um, a lot of of hockey left to be played, and we'll see how it plays out. Um, In the West Division, you've got, again, tight up top. You've got the Vegas Golden Knights with 24 wins, 8 losses, and 1 overtime loss for 49 points through 33 games. Um, Right behind them, you've got the Colorado Avalanche at 22 wins, 8 losses, 4 overtime losses for 48 points. So 1 point behind the Vegas Golden Knights, but they played one more game than Vegas. Um, And then the Minnesota Wild have been buzzing all year. Kirill Kaprizov, uh, Matt Zuccarello, Victor Rask, uh, the team's Capo Kakinen. Now they're getting some great goaltending from Cam Talbot out of nowhere. Cam Talbot had back-to-back shutouts this past week, uh, playing unbelievable. Um, So they're at 21 wins, 10 losses, two overtime losses for 44 points through 33 games. Just incredible, uh, you know, up top of the division. And St. Louis, they're puttering a little bit right now, uh, but they're still holding on to that four-seed trying to fend off the uh, the Desert Dogs, the Arizona Coyotes, but the, the Blues have 16 wins, 13 losses, six overtime losses for 38 points through 35 games, and the Arizona Coyotes right behind them on the outside looking in with 16 wins, 14 losses, and five overtime losses for 37 points through 35 games. So one point back of the Blues. So really a five-team race there. I mean, you got the Kings, the Sharks, and the Anaheim Ducks 
Um, the California teams just really, you know, not not much of a chance to, to make a playoff push here. Um, but it's a five-team race there, so excited to see how that plays out. And then lastly, the Central Division. Again, like the, the, the way these divisions are just so top-heavy, it's crazy. Um, you've got the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, I think everybody's favored to to win the Stanley Cup and repeat. They've got 24 wins, nine losses, two overtime losses for 50 points through 35 games. They've got the uh, Florida Panthers right behind them with 23 wins, nine losses, and four overtime losses uh, for 50 points. Also tied with the Lightning, but they're right behind them because they played one more game. And unfortunately for the Florida Panthers, their uh, Norris Trophy candidate, and maybe would have won the Norris Trophy if this didn't happen, um, Aaron Ekblad, one of the best defensemen in the league. He was leading the NHL and scoring uh, goal scoring as a defenseman, playing unbelievable hockey. Um, suffered a horrible injury, just a you know a, a gruesome injury to watch. A, a broken leg the other night um, against the Dallas Stars, and he's going to miss 12 weeks. So there's only six weeks left in the regular season. So he's out for the rest of the year. I'm um, going to miss the whole playoffs. A huge blow. Um, to the Florida Panthers playoff, um, you know, they're going to make the playoffs, but their, their playoff run chances. And it'll be interesting, interesting to see, uh, with the trade deadline coming up on April 12th, you know, what, what they can do to possibly patch that hole. But I mean, it's a huge hole to patch. Cause like I said, Aaron Eckblad is playing great. So you got to feel sorry for the Florida Panthers, their fans down there. And that team, that organization has been struggling for a long time. You know, um, they've only got one or two playoff appearances, in the last 20 some years. So you feel for them. I'm really pulling for them to, to get through, but having a blow, like losing their top defenseman and a Norris trophy candidate defenseman is a bad, bad blow for them and the NHL as a whole. And right behind them, the Carolina hurricanes, 23 wins, eight losses, three overtime losses for 49 points through 34 games. So they're one point behind the lightning and the Panthers, but they got a couple games at hand on those teams. So Interesting at the top of that division. And then you've got Nashville. So I mentioned Nashville before in the intro where I've been shitting on this team. Um, they've been, you know, for me, they've been sellers. They're going to be sellers at the deadline. But and like I said, it's rumored that the Flyers are in on Matthias Ekholm, one of the, the defensemen for the Nashville Predators. But right now, the Predators are in a playoff spot. They're kind of like in a position like I thought the Penguins were in a couple weeks ago before the Penguins went on a real heater. Um you know, they're a playoff team right now, but are they a contender? Like, do you really think if you're David Poyle, the general manager of the Nashville Predators, that your team's a contender, the way they've been playing, how inconsistent they've been playing, how their goaltending's been inconsistent, they can't score at times, their power play's brutal. You know, I just wonder what what his thought process is. Do you maybe still, still kind of sell some players, maybe move some um, defenseman, maybe move a forward or two, like a Philip Forsberg or something like that, try to get some fresh blood into the organization because I really don't think they're, you know, they're a contender, but they've won five straight games. So it's possible that they go on, they continue this heater and they get into the conversation for that division lead. I mean, right now they're 10, 10 and 11 points back um, of the lightning Florida and Carolina, but crazier things can happen for sure. And, and they're tied also with the Chicago Blackhawks who are on the outside looking in. Um, they're at 17 wins, 15 losses and five overtime losses. The Blackhawks are through 37 games. Um, so they're tied in points with the Predators. Um, but I, I, I'm guessing it's based on regulation and overtime wins, why they're on the outside looking in. And then right behind them is the Columbus Blue Jackets who are a gong show. 
and we've talked about them a lot over the um, you know first couple episodes of the podcast. But Patrick Laine, he has not been living up to his expectations. He's got one goal and three apples in his last 16 games. For a pure goal scorer to have one goal in 16 games is really not getting it done for that team. And I've seen reports that they're talking contract extension for him at like a one-year deal worth nine to $10 million. I just don't see that happening. I don't see it happening with Torts there. Um, a lot of people are speculating that John Tortorella is going to get canned, and maybe he needs to because he does wear out his welcome. We've talked about this many a times, um, but that team is just not responding to him right now, and they're not playing well, and they're better on paper, I think, um, than their record indicates. And the Dallas Stars, too. Like, the Dallas Stars, right now, they are 11 wins, 12 losses, and 10 overtime losses. 10 overtime losses is absurd at this point in the season. They've got 32 points through 33 games. And remember, they made the uh, Stanley Cup final last year. So huge disappointment there. I know they've got some injuries um, with uh, the Warthog, Alexander Radulov. He's out. Uh, and they haven't been getting the production from their top guys. Goaltendings have been a little bit iffy, but very surprising there um, for that that division. So that's really, I mean, honestly, it's a six-team race. If Columbus can get things together, but the way they've been playing, I don't know. And the the, the way the organization's kind of trying to figure out the next steps with if they want to extend line A or do they want to uh, keep John Tortorella or whatever the case is. They want to make some moves. It's tough to get uh, free agents to sign in Columbus. We've been over that, but... You know, again, it's a six-team race there, so I'm really excited to watch how these uh, playoff races play out because really there's only like four or five teams that are out of it, which hurts the trade deadline because teams might not want to move players if they think they've got a chance. Um, so swig a beer for the NHL teams that are still in the hunt and going to make this one of the most exciting playoff uh, you know experiences of all time with the in-division opponents and uh, just can't wait to see the different matchups from teams that haven't played each other. You know, once they get out of those divisional rounds, Teams that haven't played each other in over a year. It's going to be unbelievable to watch. So swig a beer for the NHL playoffs. From a personal perspective, I did want to touch on the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins for a little bit. Um, They've got 12 of their last 16 games. They've held a two-goal lead, which is pretty incredible because if you remember on a previous episode, I mentioned that in their first 20 games, they only had two two goal leads in those 20 games. So they've really been uh, putting the puck in the back of the net and playing well as a unit. Um, I mentioned before they're tied with the Colorado avalanche for 25 points over their last 16 games, which is best in the NHL. They're really just clicking on all cylinders. They're passing well tape to tape. Their zone entries are incredible. I haven't seen the penguins, you know, with this much chemistry in a long time, it seems like they're just gaining the zone with ease on, on the offensive zone rushes and the power play. Um, just, Everything is clicking right now. And that's kind of funny how the way hockey works. You can go one week and you can't do anything right. The next week you look like you're the Harlem Globetrotters out there. So um, they're just playing very disciplined. They're playing with great determination. They're digging deep. They've got a lot of injuries. Um, They might get down early in the game, no problem. If they get a lead, they can hang on. Um, This team, honestly, they have balls and they're fun to watch. And I'm so happy as a Pittsburgh Penguins fan how they're playing. And Mike Sullivan's got to be happy. And honestly, it all starts with Sidney Crosby, the captain. This guy, he is an MVP-level player right now. He's got 39 points through 34 games. He's absolutely got the team on his back with all the injuries they have. We'll get to in a second. We've talked about But he's got the team on his back. The Penguins have a record of 23-11-2, as we mentioned. Uh, they're tied for second in the East. Um, they're, they're in third based on the regulation and overtime wins with the New York Islanders. But they've got an absolutely decimated lineup. I mean, they've got, they're trotting out guys that don't belong anywhere near the National Hockey League in most instances, but those guys are pulling the rope. And it's funny, I've always seen these tweets where, like, 
<laughs> I don't remember the exact names of the tweets, but it was like, every time you think the Penguins are going to fall off, you're like, oh, they got all these injuries or they don't have any depth. You see like Joe Schmo and like, you know, whatever, some other guy, some generic name that you've never heard of. And you look at the stat sheet and you're like, well, you're like these guys, I mean, this team's brutal. And then you look at the stat sheet and those guys have 47 points through like, you know, 50 games or something like that. It's just crazy. Now the Penguins organization, their depth, they might not have the most uh, you know talented players, but they all buy in. They play well. They take advantage of their opportunities, and you saw that through the 2016 and 2017 Cup runs. You're seeing it now. These guys are taking advantage of their opportunity, and they're playing a damn good role, um, playing well, and keeping this team afloat um, throughout all these injuries. And Sidney Crosby, as I mentioned, he's playing at an MVP level right now. He actually notched his 1,300th NHL point this past weekend, so big swig of beer for that. What an accomplishment. He does so in 1,017 games. He becomes the eighth fastest in NHL history to join uh, the 1,300-point club um, with Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, Marcel Dion, Phil Esposito, Steve Eiserman, Yaramir Yager, and Brian Trottier. Um, so pretty awesome to see, especially in this era, the number of points he's putting up are just absurd. Um, and we'll dive into to my midseason picks for the Hart Trophy in a moment, but I wanted to mention... As always, the Penguins on the injury front. Evgeny Malkin was recently moved to the long-term injury reserve. Uh, for anybody that's wondering what that means, because he has been out for a couple weeks now, what that means is um, he cannot return until April 9th because when you get moved to the LTIR, so they, they moved him to the LTIR retroactive to March 16th. You're allowed to do that with the NHL. So that was the first day he was out, basically, and he was considered injured. Um so they move him back retroactive to March 16th. It allows him to, it allows the team to move his cap off of their, um, move his cap hit off of their salary cap to allow other players to come back. Like we'll talk about in a second with Jason Zucker, but it the LTIR means that you must miss 10 games or 24 calendar days, I believe. So the earliest that Evgeny Malkin could return if he's healthy is April 9th. So not too far away. I haven't heard anything as far as his progress. If he's skating, I haven't seen any of that stuff, but at least he'll be able to return on April 9th, which will be huge for the Penguins to add him back to the lineup. Uh, the Penguins have moved uh, Brandon Tanev. We talked about him last week as being day-to-day. They moved him to the IR, so it appears that he's out for a little bit more period of time than uh, was initially thought. Again, it could be a cap move. They might need to save some money for their salary cap with some players coming back, but it appears that Tanev's on the IR, so hopefully he'll get well soon because the Penguins desperately need him um, in that bottom six role, in that penalty kill role. Um, and Kasperi Kapanen, it just keeps piling up. Kasperi Kapanen having one of the best seasons of his career, um, especially when he was playing with Evgeny Malkin before Evgeny Malkin went out, um, scored a goal the other night and then left the game. He's now week to week with a um, an injury. I'm not sure if it's lower body or upper body. I haven't seen. Um, somebody can tweet me and tell me you know, what it is. But again, it's so generic in the NHL, you really don't know. But again, he's week to week. Um, so it's just crazy the way that, that it's just a patchwork lineup that they're putting together. The Penguins are each and every night, and they're just going out there and getting the job done. You'll love to see it if you're a Penguins fan. Um, I mentioned Jason Zucker. He returned Monday night. He added much-needed speed to the lineup, um, depth, strong forechecking. And honestly, I thought he tore his ACL in that injury a couple weeks ago. He had a real bad... Um, you know, his knee basically bent backwards and he was rolling on the ice, holding his knee and everything. And it looked horrible. It looked like it was a season ending injury, uh, but he really, in reality, only missed a couple of weeks. So that's a blessing for the Penguins that they started getting healthy with some of these other guys that I've talked about. Look out, especially the way they're playing now. 
I mean, they're going to add a lot of firepower to the lineup and all that confidence. And those young guys, as I mentioned, that have stepped up and filled those uh, roles for the injured players, they're going to be hungry to stay in the lineup. So it's a goddamn good recipe for success for the Penguins. Um, so I'm so excited for that. Um, the last one was Tristan Jari, the goaltender, playing great this year. Um, unfortunately, he played the first period the other night against the New York Islanders, and then he did not return for the second period. Um, I didn't really see any specific play. I, I I saw him get ran over in front of the net there, and he kind of fell back into his own goal. Uh, I'm not sure if he banged his head off the crossbar or anything like that. I don't want to speculate, but um, he did leave the game, and Casey DeSmith came in, so that's a question mark in the air there that I haven't seen anything. The Penguins, I, again, as I mentioned, I'm recording on Tuesday. The Penguins did not practice today. Um, they had an off day. Uh, they play Thursday night, so they might practice on Wednesday. So there'll be more um, information come out right before this podcast drops. But as of right now, Tristan Jari, he's out. He's day-to-day. I um, haven't seen what his injury is. Um, but Casey DeSmith did mention the backup goalie that came in and, and filled in for Tristan Jari. He did mention in his post-game uh, media um, you know, press conference there that it, he didn't think it was serious with Tristan Jari. Um, wasn't a serious long-term type of injury, but I've heard that before from players. I mean, what are they going to say? They're not going to come out to the media before the team does and say he's out long-term. Um, he's basically just going to downplay it. And Mike Sullivan, the coach of the Penguins, said that you know he didn't see what happened with Tristan Jari, but the um, you know the medical staff obviously felt it was important enough or significant enough to pull him out of the game. So it remains to be seen when he'll come back. But Casey DeSmith, do you think you know? My question is. To the listeners, do you think Casey DeSmith can carry the load? I mean, he's shown nothing but play well. He's got an 8-3 and three record this year as a backup. He's got a, a .929 save percentage and a 1.91 goals against the average. And those are some of the top numbers in the NHL if you look around. I know he hasn't played as many games. He's only played 11 games. But, you know, he's not the typical guy that I would feel comfortable with being a starter in the NHL and going into the playoffs with. But he's definitely more than serviceable, and I think he can get him through this time. Um, right now, because their backup really is a, is an unproven guy from the minors um, who hasn't you know played in the NHL. So it's it'll be interesting to see what happens. Hopefully, you know, for the Penguins and the Penguins fans' sake and the organization that Tristan Jari can get back quick, and it's just a minor injury, and they were hold, holding him out for precautionary reasons. But you know, over the short term here, I think we can uh, you know we can trust in in Casey DeSmith. But over the long haul, I'm not sure about that. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but swig a beer for the Pittsburgh Penguins and the way they're playing, and swig a beer for Sidney Crosby. I want to dive into the Hart Trophy conversation here after this swig. For the Hart Trophy which is the National Hockey League most valuable player. If I had a ballot, uh, and I'm really enjoying doing these um, you know, segments. I've had some good listener feedback and people telling me they really enjoy my perspective in terms of who I would vote for. Again, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you know I'll ever in my lifetime have a vote for this, but I do watch a shit ton of hockey. I watch a ton of games. Um, so I, I do have a, a good perspective on this, I like to think. And uh, I'll give you my, my ballot and my top three for the Hart Trophy, the most valuable player in the NHL. And I think really um, it's impossible to argue Connor McDavid at number one, the front runner for the trophy right now. He's got 21 goals, 42 assists, 63 points in 36 games. He's a plus 16. I believe his 63 points in 36 games is the most since uh, sometime in, in the 80s when Wayne Gretzky had 81 points 
uh, through his first 36 games. So pretty incredible what McDavid's been able to do. If you watch some of his games, he's just putting on a clinic out there. He's definitely far and above the best player on the ice most nights when he's playing. And it's incredible to watch just kind of how he makes everybody, uh, you know, just ooh and ah with what he does on the ice and how incredible it is, especially if you played hockey at any level or if you've been watching hockey just to watch him play. Um, he's definitely the most valuable player right now for me. And he's got his team in a playoff spot, so which is something they haven't had um, in the last couple of years. So he's leading his team to a playoff spot, and I wouldn't want to play them at all if I'm anybody in that North Division in the first round of the playoffs or even the second round. Um, so my first pick for the Hart Trophy would be uh, Connor McDavid. I think moving past it, and I just went through some of his uh, the reasons why I think he's playing at an MVP level. I've got Sidney Crosby. He's got 14 goals, 25 assists for 39 points through 35 games, and I know those aren't like you know you know blow you out of the water stats, um, but at the end of the day, if you take a look at the Penguins lineup and what he's being like, what he's basically putting on his back and dragging with him, and the record that they have. You have to put him in there for me. And I've seen it all over NHL.com and NHL Network and stuff like that where they're talking about Sidney Crosby, the old guard, the people that are writing off, the people that say, you know, hey, uh, McDavid, Dreisaitl, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, Mark Shifley, these young guys, which no offense to those guys, but Sidney Crosby's not ready to give up that throne just yet. And I think he's still the best player in the league in terms of what he brings to the table. But that's a completely different conversation for a different day. But as far as the Hart Trophy, I got him at second place right now. And if he continues to do what he's doing and he gets the Penguins to maybe a division title or, you know, an unbelievable record for every, you know, everybody thought the Penguins weren't making the playoffs this year, except for me, as far as all the experts. Um, I'm never betting against Sidney Crosby and what he's doing right now. He's got Brian Rust playing unbelievable on his right wing. He's got Jake Gensel playing unbelievable on his left wing controlling the power play, playing well, creating chances. He's double shifting. He's playing better. Um, you know, you're playing with lesser players, I should say, and making them better, looking like, you know, a couple of shifts with Anthony Angelo and Freddie Goudreau and tough stuff like that. So it's pretty incredible what Sidney Crosby's doing, if you ask me. Um, so I got to have him second on my list right now, and he's not far behind McDavid. But again, it's hard to argue with McDavid's production on the stat sheet. Um, third, I have Patrick Kane. So Patrick Kane, again, similar to Sidney Crosby, a team that's mostly been written off the Chicago Blackhawks this year coming into it. Nobody really thought they had any chance to make any noise, and they've been playing well. Now, they have kind of like veered off a little bit on their path over the last couple um, you know, weeks. They're, they're tied with Nashville right now, but they're on the outside looking in, as we just discussed. But Patrick Kane's got uh, 13 goals, 35 apples for 48 points through 36 games. So he's playing unbelievable hockey, uh, producing at a, at a clip that he's used to producing. Um, so again, he's kind of like Crosby. It's the old guard, these old players that are kind of like, you know, almost being written off by media. And that's what every sport does. They look for the next talent. They look for the Patrick Mahomes and they forget about the Tom Brady, even though Tom Brady continues to win and win and win. So I think that's what's happening here. And you've got Patrick Kane and you've got Sidney Crosby right on uh, Connor McDavid's heels for the most valuable player in the NHL. So again, I would have no problem uh, any of these guys winning the trophy. And again, there's still a lot of hockey left to be played here. You know, six weeks left in the season, but I think it's, it's McDavid's trophy right now, but these two, Kane and Crosby, are right on his heels, and anything could happen, especially if one of these three teams starts to slide a little bit. You know, you never know what happens because that's a part of it. It's most valuable player to your team. You can be a guy that puts up 100 points, but your team misses the playoffs or they lose every game. 
right now each of these teams are winning and playing well and they got a shot to make the playoffs and make a little run here so swig a beer for uh connor mcdavid Sidney crosby and patrick kane for leading the way in the nhl as far as my heart trophy ballot And I mentioned before the trade deadline in the NHL is coming up on April 12th this year. Um, so next week on the podcast, we're gonna re- uh, we're gonna preview the NHL trade deadline um, with a possible surprise guest. So stay tuned for that. But as far as trades that have happened so far, because some general managers like to trade early, um, Eric Stahl has been traded to the uh, from the Buffalo Sabers. Again, they're a fire sale, trying to get rid of anybody they can, acquire any assets they can. Uh, has been traded to the Montreal Canadiens. So the Habs add um, some depth. They add some veteran leadership. Um, So we'll see what happens with that. I think it's a good fit up there uh, with Eric Stahl. He's not what he once was, but he can definitely add something to that lineup and and bring some um, experience and maybe help some of those young guys they have in Montreal along the way. So it remains to be seen how that works out. Um, Fortunately for the Canadian teams, uh, the Canadian government just reduced the quarantine for people that were coming in from the United States to Canada uh, to seven days. So Eric Stahl only has to quarantine for seven days and pass a couple COVID tests, um, and, and he'll be good to join the lineup. So he'll be joining the the Habs here in a couple days. And Brendan Lemieux, uh, this is actually a very surprising trade. Brendan Lemieux, he's an absolute scumbag on the ice, but he's a he's a good player to have on your team. He's just always under the other team's skin. He's just getting into it. He's mucking up in front of the net. He's fighting. He's throwing um, you know borderline checks. He's producing on the score sheet a little bit. Um, he was traded to the uh, Los Angeles Kings from the New York Rangers. And as, and as I mentioned, he's a guy you'd like to have on your team. He plays exactly like his dad did, Claude Lemieux. Um, what a beauty Claude Lemieux is. I'd love to have some time um, at some point to dig into his career <laughs> and uh, how much of like a, a gong show he was on the ice. Great player, but a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of controversial moments in his career as far as some plays on the ice. But I was surprised by this because like, I think they only got, the Rangers only got like a third or a fourth rounder back uh, from the Kings for Brendan Lemieux. And it's a good piece to add if you're the Kings. He's a young player. Um, definitely can get under other people's skin. He's kind of like a Matthew Kachuk type, maybe not as productive. Uh, Matthew Kachuk up in the, um, you know, in Alberta, as far as um, one of the top guys for the Calgary Flames. So it's interesting to see why the Rangers would do that. And do they have something in mind? Are they going to be adding somebody in the offseason, maybe making a trade, um, freeing up cap space, something like that? So something to keep your eye on. But again, if I'm the Rangers, I'm not sure I, I would make that move. But, uh, those are the two big trades that have happened so far in the NHL. And one last note I wanted to mention on hockey is I wanted to congratulate Phil Kessel on 1,000 games played. Um, Phil Kessel, one of the best guys in the NHL, um, just an unbelievable guy, a beauty, um, loves the game, tries hard, you know, just just a great guy. It was one, It was pivotal uh, for the Pittsburgh Penguins winning their back-to-back Stanley Cups, one of the best players, um, you know, in Penguin history as far as his tenure here. Um, had some tough times up in Boston, moved on to Toronto, uh, was basically blamed for everything in Toronto that went wrong because he's an American guy, uh, was moved to Pittsburgh and miraculously wins the Stanley Cup uh, twice. Um, ultimately, you know, salary cap reasons and a couple of flame outs in the playoffs. Um, he was moved over to Arizona to reunite with his his buddy Rick Tockett, who's the coach out there for the Coyotes. Um, but I have nothing but positive things to say about Phil Kessel, one of my favorite players of all time. Still can't believe that he's been a Pittsburgh Penguin. 
Um, it's just crazy to me that he was a Pittsburgh Penguin and how productive he was and how blessed I was to watch him. So congratulations to Phil Castle. 1,000 games is nothing to snuff at. And I'm not sure exactly how many games he's played in a row, but he hasn't missed a game for a long damn time. We talked about that with Keith Yandel, but Phil Kessel's the same way. He hasn't missed a game for a long time. And uh, I know Mark Madden, <laughs> Mark Madden in Pittsburgh always talks about because people mention that Phil Kessel's been out of shape. He's a little bit on the heavy side, not necessarily known for his fitness. He's just smashing hot dogs left and right. Um, he's a huge gambler. He always enters the World Series of Poker. There's been stories in Pittsburgh where he's been hanging out in the Rivers Casino after games, spending thousands of dollars. So he's he's just a beauty. But Mark Madden always says, you know, he plays so long. Um, in the league because you can't pull fat. So <laughs> I always thought that was interesting. But uh, swig a beer for Phil Kessel. Great guy. Absolutely stoked for him. Hopefully many more games in a row he can play in many more years in the NHL because he's a beauty and one of the best players in the NHL and one of the best American players in NHL history. So again, swig a beer for Phil Kessel. I wanted to switch gears a little bit uh, to the world of entertainment. And touch on a few points that I thought were interesting. Um, I'm not sure if everybody knows what these are. You know, I haven't watched too many of them, but I I do know what it is, and it's worth a lot of money now based on you know how big it's gotten. Um, but with COVID, they had this thing called versus battles, where basically they take these two artists. It's mainly occurred in the hip hop um, industry, but they take these two artists and they kind of get on a stream and the fans can pay to watch. I don't actually. I'm not sure if you have to pay to watch. It might be free. I'm not sure how it goes, but they have these two artists, um, they kind of go against each other and they play their different songs from their discography. And basically the fans choose who wins. And it, it's like an hour and a half and they play all their songs and they do some live performances or they play music um, from their CDs, things like that. And it's pretty interesting to see. Um, most notably, I think, was uh, for any hip-hop fans out there, was Gucci Mane versus Young Jeezy, who have a long history of a very, very personal um, issue with each other. Um, just a personal beef where they're rapping about the other guy's dead buddies. and It's, it's fucking nuts. Um, so to see those two guys in the same room is pretty incredible. And they're, and they're playing their diss records to each other. It was insane. Um, so that's basically where it started. But I saw a point on Twitter the other day where they were starting to do them for R&B artists. And I was thinking, I, I want any listener out there that knows anything about music or likes R&B or early 2000s R&B, anything like that, to tell me if anybody out there has a better discography in the R&B world, I guess in the modern era, I'm not talking about you know Marvin Gaye's and those kind of things. I'm talking about the modern era where I grew up in you know the 90s and 2000s a better discography than Usher. Because I don't think you could find it. I mean, I've seen people say Chris Brown, but Chris Brown ain't sniffing Usher, if, if you ask me. He ain't even close. He's got a lot of features. He's also got a lot of duds, in my opinion. But Usher, the Confessions albums, banger, 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 banger. Every fucking song was an absolute hit. Um, so I would love somebody to reach out to me and tell me, 
you know, if, if anybody in their, in their, uh, you know, their, their mind has a better discography than Usher, I'd love to hear it. And I love to have, you know, potentially somebody on to, to uh, talk music a little bit about that, because I think that's an interesting topic. So again, if you haven't seen these versus battles, you're into hip hop or you're into any kind of music, they're pretty interesting. And I think they're the wave of the future of how like some of these things are going to go and artists can uh, kind of connect with their fans and they can kind of make money and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting to see. And um, so I, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was interesting that somebody thought Chris Brown had a better discography than Usher. So, um, I cannot wait to hear the feedback on that. And one of the last things I wanted to mention on this episode was, uh, the segment regarding this week in sports and entertainment history. So I thought this was fitting, uh, based on the conversation that we had earlier in the episode, but on March 30th, 2003, Kerry Frazier, the NHL official officiated his 1476th. NHL game to break Andy Van Hellemann's record. Um, so pretty crazy, you know, to, to be the guy that's officiated the most games. He's seen so much. And there's a crazy story um, around Kerry Frazier and Mario Lemieux. I don't remember what year it was. It was in the 90s. I want to say it was like 90 or 91, 92, somewhere in there during the Penguins uh, dynasty there with Lemieux. And Kerry Frazier and Lemieux did not get along. And that led me as a young kid to really despise Kerry Frazier. And to this day, I, I still kind of, I'm a little iffy about him, but he's been uh, on a lot of podcasts I listen to and hockey related interviews and stuff. And he's, he's a, he's a good guy, but there was an incident where he called a penalty on Mario Lemieux and Mario Lemieux was not happy about it. And he was in the box and he's sitting there and Kerry Frazier skates by the uh, penalty bench and he says something to Lemieux. I'm not sure what he said, but he basically looks over at Lemieux, and next thing you know, Lemieux grabs like grabs the door of the penalty box, swings it open, and darts out of the penalty box and starts chasing Kerry Frazier around the ice. <laughs> um, ended up getting a game misconduct. A lot of people around the league thought he should have been suspended for that, but they thought he was getting preferential treatment because he was Mario Lemieux. But uh, one of the, the few times you see Mario Lemieux lose his cool. Um, but a pretty cool story about Kerry Frazier and... Um, Pretty awesome for him to be, um, you know, on, on March 30th, 2003, he became the the official to officiate the most NHL games in history. So swig a beer for uh, Kerry Frazier. Also, speaking of Mario Lemieux, on March 30th, 1989, he scored his, I hope you're sitting down for this stat too, his NHL record 13th. Let me give that to you one more time. 13th shorthanded goal in a season 13 shorthanded goals in one season there's guys now that are like primetime penalty killers that don't have 13 uh, shorthanded goals in a career but 13 in one season is absurd and it kind of gets me thinking should more teams put their top players on the penalty kill kind of like in today's era Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand play a lot on the penalty kill, and they produce a lot. They get a lot of shorthanded chances and a lot of shorthanded goals. The one knock on it for me is like, if I'm the Penguins, you know, and I hate to keep going back to the Penguins, but that's my favorite team. So if you don't like it, you know, tough shit. But you know, they they're not going to put Crosby and Malkin out there on the penalty kill because the last thing you need is Sidney Crosby taking a goddamn slap shot from the blue line off the instep of his right foot, and then he's missing ten weeks. So it's a risk that some teams are willing to take. And in, you know, in the eighties and nineties, the Penguins were because nobody could deal with Lemieux. I mean, Crosby goes out there at times. He takes face-offs and things like that. Um, do I think he could get that many shorthanded goals? I do. Uh, I do think that he could 
really put some pressure on the power play and, and make them think about some of their plays and some of their draw passes and stuff because how dangerous he is. But you really want the guys out there that can just play the position and dump the puck out and live to fight another day. Um, maybe the occasional shift for a Crosby or Malkin. But I wanted to point out that because 13 shorthanded goals is absurd um, in a single season. So swig a beer for Mario Lemieux for a variety of reasons. But in this case, absurd stat with shorthanded goals in one year. A couple other notes unrelated to hockey. In 1982, this week, uh, which is noted as the birth of Michael Jordan, uh, Michael Jordan hit a game-winning uh, you know, shot with about eight or nine seconds left against Georgetown as a freshman to win the NCAA uh, championship. Um, he actually credits himself um, at, as that point being the birth of Michael Jordan. So that's kind of when Michael Jordan burst onto the scene. He had a great year, obviously, in 1982, and people knew who he was. But from then on, um, there on out, he was a, an absolute legend. So I wanted to point that out. Um, in 2013, one of the more gruesome sports injuries of all time, I remember exactly where I was, me and my buddy T-Roy, and I think uh, Connor and a couple other of my buddies from college were watching the games uh, the March Madness tournament in 2013, just prior to our graduation, which seems like an eternity ago. Um, but Louisville uh, small forward Kevin Ware shot a jumper, and he kind of came down awkwardly on his leg and broke his leg in one of the most gruesome injuries, injuries in sports history, as I mentioned. He landed funny, and his leg snapped, and his bone was sticking out of his leg a couple inches, like, significant on high def tv and like you see some of the people in the crowd and some of the players on the bench like i think some of the guys threw up it was one of the most disgusting things i've ever seen uh gruesome injuries i'm not actually sure what kevin ware is doing today if he's okay if he was able to ever play again um you know i don't think he was good enough to make the nba but maybe he was able to play in europe um i'll have to look at that but one of the most gruesome things i've ever seen in my life um so Swig a beer for, for Kevin Ware for going through that, and hopefully he's doing better today and he's able to keep playing basketball, you know, wherever the hell he's playing basketball at. But, man, was that just horrible and awful to watch. And lastly, I've talked about in the last couple episodes, uh, one of my heroes in life, Stone Cold Steve Austin, on March 30th. March 30th is a crazy day as far as uh, sports history goes, but... March 30th, 18 years ago, Stone Cold Steve Austin wrestled his last match where he did the job uh, for The Rock So at WrestleMania 19. So it was the first time The Rock had beat Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania. Um, incredible moment. Incredible, um, you know, for Stone Cold to do, do the job for him. It was his last match. Nobody knew that except for Jim Ross, the announcer, and um, The Rock because Stone Cold had actually um, had been in the uh, ER that day of the match, basically, where he had a bad combination of um, energy drinks, coffee, and beer that was in his system. And uh, he had a lot of health problems at that point. And the doctors advised him not to wrestle. But, like, what's he going to do? It's WrestleMania. It's been sold. I got to wrestle. So he basically made the made the decision that, hey, I'm going to wrestle The Rock. You know, I'm going to try my best out there. He personally, I think, thought he stunk up the joint. But... You know, anybody that's a Stone Cold fan of the Rock fan knows that that match was great. One of the best matches in that rivalry's history. Um, it's unfortunate that Stone Cold Steve Austin kind of had to ride off into the sunset without a proper uh, send-off. But I think that's the way that Stone Cold would have wanted it. 
Um, it's cool when the, at the end of the match you see Stone Cold uh, laying there. Obviously, he just got pinned by The Rock, and The Rock shoves the referee out of the way. And um, you can see him talking to Stone Cold Steve Austin, and he's basically saying, I've seen interviews uh, with The Rock and Austin after that, basically saying, you know, where The Rock was like, hey, you don't know how much this means to me. I appreciate the hell out of you uh, for doing the job for me. Um, I love you, man. It's been awesome running this whole company with you, you know, and, and all that stuff. It was a very emotional moment. Um, pretty awesome to see. So swig of beer for Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock, two of the guys that really elevated World Wrestling uh, Federation and, and the World Wrestling Entertainment Organization to where it is today. And it wouldn't be where it is, obviously, if it wasn't for them. So swig of beer for Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock for what an incredible match at WrestleMania 19. And one other note I wanted to mention uh, before we sign off is, uh, again, another wrestling note that WWE Hall of Famer and D-Generation X member and uh, wrestling royalty Armstrong family member, the road dog Jesse James, unfortunately uh, suffered a heart attack this past week. Um, I haven't seen any prognosis. I haven't seen any, um, you know, what the severity of the heart attack was. But on behalf of the Rambling Bruise podcast, I just want to mention that I hope he gets well. Um, I hope he has a full recovery. I hope he gets back to his role with the WWE, uh, but most importantly, gets back to his family and his friends and things like that. So um, on behalf of the Rambling Bruise podcast, get well, Road Dog. Oh, you didn't know? Well, your ass better call somebody. <laughs> Swig a beer for Road Dog, Jesse James, man. Get well. And on that note, I hope you guys have a hell of an Easter weekend. If you're anything like me, you'll crush some Coors Light, some ham, and some scalloped potatoes, and you'll have a great damn time with the family. Remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around. Here. What's up? Fresh is our turn, baby. Gator, boots, gator, boots with the Yeah.